Section 24 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Alfred Lord Tennyson, Part 1. 1809-1892. The Spirit of Modern Poetry, by G. Mercer Adam. Of Tennyson, what can one write freshly today that will not seem but an echo of what has been said or written of England's noble singer, who on the death of Wordsworth, now over a half a century ago, assumed the official bays of the English laureateship. Personal homage, of course, one can pay to the illustrious name, so dear to the heart of the English-speaking race. But how freshly or vitally can any writer now speak of that magnificent body of his verse which is the glory of his age, of the nobility and knightly virtues of its author's character, of the splendor of its genius, or of the breadth of intellectual and spiritual interests which was so signally manifested in all that Tennyson thought and wrote. Among the beacon lights in the present series of volumes, the laureate of the age has not hitherto been included, and to fill the gap the writer of this sketch has ventured, not, of course, to say all that might be said of the great poet, but to modestly deal with the man in his art, so that neither his era nor his work shall go unchronicled, or fail of some recognition, however inadequate in these pages. Tennyson's supreme excellence, it is admitted, lies not so much in his themes as in his transcendent art. It is this that has given him his hold upon a cultured age and won for him immortality. His work is the perfection of literary form, and in his lyrical pieces especially, his melody is exquisite. Not less masterly is his power of construction, while his sensibility to beauty is phenomenal. His secluded life brought him close to nature's heart and made him familiar with her every voice and mood. In interpreting these, much of the charm lies in the fidelity of his descriptions and in the surpassing beauty of the word painting. In the Shakespearean sense, he lacked the dramatic faculty, but he had slender gifts of invention and creation. But broad, if not always strong, was his intelligence and keen his interest in the problems of the time. Though living apart from the world, he was yet of it, and in many of his poems may be traced not only the doings, but the thoughts and tendencies of his age. His Christianity, though undogmatic, was real and pervasive, and his love for nature was a devotion. In national affairs, as befitted the official singer of his country, witness his fine ode on the death of the Duke of Wellington, he showed himself the historic as well as the modern Englishman, and great was his reverence for law and freedom. Attractive also, if at times somewhat commonplace, is the quiet domestic sphere which Tennyson has hallowed in the many modern idols which depict the joys and sorrows of humble life. No trait in the poet's many-sided character is more beautiful than the sympathy he has manifested in these poems with the world's toilers, while nothing could well be more touching than the pathos with which he invests their simple annals. Typical of the Victorian age in which he lived, Tennyson is also representative of its highest thought and culture. This is seen not only in the thought of his verse, but in its splendid forms, and especially in the technical equipment of the poet. In his dialogues there is much movement and action, and he had consummate skill in handling of meters. Few poets have approached him in the successful writing of blank verse, which has a delightful cadence as well as calm strength. Above all his gifts, he was an artist in words, his ear being most sensitively attuned and his tastes pure and refined for the delicate artistry of the poet's work. In this respect, he is a matchless literary workman. Besides the music of his verse, his thought is ever high and in his serious moods, consecrated to noble and reverent purposes. 
In the midst of the negations and convulsive movements of his day, his spirit is always serene, and his thought, while at times dreamily melancholy, is conserving and full of faith's highest assurance. His sympathy with his fellow man was keen and wide-souled, and though he stood aloof from the conflict and struggle of his day, he was far from indifferent to its movements, and with high purpose strove, if not to direct, at least to reflect them. This was especially characteristic of the man, and in the conflict with doubt, no poet has more keenly interpreted the mental struggles of the thoughtful soul and the deep underlying spirit of his time, or more beneficently given the age an assured ground of faith, while conserving its highest and dearest hopes. Happily, too, unlike many poets, his own character was lofty and blameless, and hence his message comes with more consistency, as well as with a higher inspiration and power. Nor is the message the less impressive for the note of honest doubt which finds utterance in many a poem, or for the intimation of a creed that is at once liberal and conservative. With the evidences before the reader that the poet himself had his own soul wrestlings and periods of mental conflict, his counselings of courage and faith are all the more effective, as they are in unison with his belief in the upward progress of the race and his unshaken trust in a higher power. Lacking in intensity of passion and dramatic force, Tennyson here again is but typical of his era, to him one of reposeful content and calm reasoning progress. Of permanent lasting value much of his verse undoubtedly is, but not all of it will escape the indifference of posterity or the measuring rod and censure, it may be, of the future critic. Yet not the stirring strains or the careless rapture of other and earlier poets of the motherland, his characteristic is more contemplative and brooding. Yet his range is unusually comprehensive and his power varied and sustained, as well as marked by the highest qualities of rhythmic beauty. In the idyll, where he especially shines, we have much that is lovely and limpid, with abounding instances of that felicitous word-painting for which he was noted. This is especially seen in the simple pastoral idols such as Dora, the May Queen, and the Miller's Daughter, or in those tender lyrics such as Mariana, Sir Galahad, the Dying Swan, and the Talking Oak. In the ballads and songs, how felicitous again is the poet's work, and how rich yet mellifluous is the strain. Had Tennyson written nothing else but these, with the verse included in the volumes issued by him in 1832 and 1842, how high would he have been placed in the choir of song, and how supreme should we have deemed his art? In The Princess Alone, there are songs that would have made any poet's reputation, while for music and color, and especially for perfection of poetic workmanship, they are almost matchless in their beauty. Fortunately, however, the poet was to give us much even beyond these surpassingly beautiful things and make a more unique and distinctive contribution to the verse of his era. In the years that followed the production of his early writings, the poet matures in thought as his art ripens and reaches still higher qualities of craftsmanship. Recluse as he was, he moreover had his experiences of life and drank deeply of sorrow's cup, as we see in memoriam. That noble tribute to his youthful friend, Arthur Hallam, with its grand hymnal qualities and powerful and reverent lessons for an age shifting in its beliefs and unconfirmed in its faith. In later work from his pen, we see also the laureate, for he has now received official recognition from his nation, in his relations to the culture as well as to the thought of his time, keeping pace with the age and all its complex engrossments and problems. This is shown in much and varied work turned out with its author's loving interest in the poetic art, and with the characteristic delicacy and finish. The most important labor of this later time includes The Princess, Maud and Other Poems, Enoch Arden, 
the dramas Beckett, Queen Mary, and Harold, Tiresias, Demeter, the Foresters, but above all, and most notably, that grand epic of King Arthur's time, The Idols of the King. In the latter, the most characteristic and perhaps the most permanent of Tennyson's work, the poet manifests his historic sense and love for England's legendary past and achieves his design not only to glorify it, but to imbue it with a deep ethical motive and underlying purpose. The expression of his own chivalrous knightly soul and strenuous, thoughtful, and blameless life. In these splendid tales of knight-errantry, we have the full flower of the poet's genius, narrated in the true romantic spirit, but with an ideality and imagination quite Tennysonian, and with a spiritualistic touch in harmony with the voice of the age that reminds us that our little systems have their day, they have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee, and thou, O Lord, art more than they. It is what such themes and speculations that Tennyson has powerfully and impressively influenced his age. Beyond and above the mere artistry of the poet, we recognize his interest in man's higher spiritual being, his love for nature, and awe in contemplating the heights and depths of infinite time and space, ever looking upward and inward at the mysteries of the world behind the phenomena of sense. It is difficult to set in theological terms, to define the poet's creed, though we know that he was won by the broad church teachings of his friends, Frederick Robertson and Denison Maurice, and had himself many a battle to fight with honest doubts until, as his crossing of the bar shows us, he has finally conquered and delayed them. But while there is an absence of definite doctrine in his work, there is no question about his religious convictions or of his belief in the eternal verities, the eminence of God in man and the universe. Throughout his poems, he assumes the existence of a great spirit and recognizes that our souls are part of him. However, faith at times seems to veil her face from the poet, and all appears a mystery, though a mystery presided over by infinite power and love. The great problem of metaphysics and of men's origin and destiny, we are told, occupied much of his thought, and he dwelt upon them with eager intense interest and touched upon them with great candor, earnestness, and truthfulness. No sophistry could shake his belief in man's immortality, for without belief in this doctrine, the human race, he was convinced, had not incentive enough to virtue, while all man's inspirations were otherwise meaningless. For the doctrine of evolution, in its materialistic aspect, he had nothing but scorn, though he accepted it in the more spiritual guise with which Russell Wallace propounded it. If we come from the brutes, we are nevertheless linked with the divine, he believed, and it was the divine in man that was to conquer the brute within him, and in the upward struggle work out salvation. So in the realm of physical science, on the principles of which, as Huxley tells us, he had great grasp, the poet, while appalled by the mystery, accepts and indeed rejoices in its truths, though he cannot acquiesce in a godless world or in the denial of a life to come, in which the race, through infinite love, shall be brought into union with God. But leaving here Tennyson's speculations and beliefs, a most interesting part of the poet's analytical and reflective character, let us look for a little at the man personally and record briefly the chief incidents in his quiet, though ideal, home life. To those who know the memoir by his son, Hallam Tennyson, a memoir that, while paying honor to filial reverence and devotion, is at the same time and in all respects most worthy of its high theme, the events in the poet's life will hardly need dwelling upon, though they throw much light on and impart the distinction of a high dignity to the laureate's work. 
The life Hallam Tennyson describes was, we know, not lived in the public eye, and was wholly without sensational events or any of the vapid interest which usually attach to a man whose name is, in a special sense, public property, and about whom the world was eagerly, and often officiously, curious. The life the poet lived, in a popular sense, lacked all that usually attracts the masses, for he was personally little known to his generation, rarely seen among the large gatherings of the people, and great Englishman as he was, was almost a stranger, in his later years at least, in the English metropolis, or, if we accept the seats of the universities, in any of the chief towns of the kingdom. And yet, in another and higher sense, the century has hardly known among its many intellectual forces one that has been more influential in its effect upon literary art, or in certain directions has more potently influenced the ideals and more profoundly given expression to the ethical and philosophic thought of the time. Secluded as his life was, it was not one of obscurity or of mere asceticism. On the contrary, it was rich in all the elements that make for a great reputation, and ever devoted to strenuous, elevating purpose and to an ideal poetic career. So far as his tastes and opportunity offered, Tennyson's life, moreover, was enriched by many wise and noble friendships, and by intimacy with not a few of the best and most thoughtful minds of his age. It was spent, we rejoice to think also, in unceasing toil in and for his high art, with a resulting productiveness which proved the extent and varied range of his labors as well as the mastery of his craft. Until the appearance of the biography referred to, we had known the laureate almost wholly through his books. Now, thanks to the authoritative record of his accomplished surviving son, we know the poet as he lived and feel that behind his writings there is a personality of the most interesting and impressive kind. It is a personality such as consorts with the opinions which most thoughtful readers of Tennyson's writings must have had of one of the greatest and serenest minds of the age. A poet who, aside from the splendor of his workmanship and the beauty and melody of his verse, has greatly enriched the poetic literature of the century, and has, we feel, given profound thought to the intellectual problems and spiritual aspirations of his era. Nor does the memoir, as a revelation of the poet's intellectual and personal life, fall away on any page of it, from the high plane on which it has been prepared and written. There is no undue invasion which a son's pride might be apt to make of domestic privacy, and no dealing with irrelevant topics or elaboration of those set forth with becoming modesty and restraint. Far less is there the discussion of any subject for a trivial or vain purpose. Throughout the work we meet with no unnecessary lifting of veils or treatment of themes merely to satisfy morbid curiosity. Everywhere there is the evidence of sound judgment, unimpeachable taste, and a wholesome sanity. This is especially the case in the frank revelation of the poet's views on religion and his attitude toward scientific and theological thought, to which we have ourselves referred. In this respect, a large debt is due to the biographer for setting before the reader not only the high ethical purpose which Tennyson had in view in selecting the themes of his poems and in the mode of handling them, but, as we have said, in showing us what beyond peradventure were his religious opinions, and, despite a certain curtaining of gloom, how profoundly he was influenced by faith in the divine life. Nor is the least interest in the memoir to be found in the light the biographer throws on the poet's writings as a whole, how they were conceived and elaborated, and on the often hidden meaning that underlies some of the most thoughtful verse. This, to students of the laureate's writings, is of high value, in addition to the service rendered by the biographer in tracing his father's poetic work, the influences which fashioned it, 
and the pains he took to give its marvelous beauty and artistic finish of expression. It is this instructive as well as skilled and dignified treatment, with the vast literary and deep personal interest in the life, that will commend the memoir to all who are proud of the laureate's fame, and wished to have nothing written that was unworthy of either the poet or the man, or that would in the least detract from his laurels. Nor does the restraint which the biographer imposes upon himself conceal from us the man in his human aspects, or lead him to set before the reader an imaginary rather than a veritable and real portraiture. We have a picture, it is true, of an almost ideal domestic life, and of a man of rare gifts and fine culture, whose work and career have been and are the pride and glory of the English-speaking race. But we have also the story of an author not free from human weaknesses, and, though endowed with manifold and great gifts, yet who had to labor long and earnestly to perfect himself in his art, and in his early years had much discouragement and not a little adversity to contend with. With all the toil and stress his early years had known, when success came to the poet, no one was less unspoiled by it, and when sunshine fell upon and gilded his life, maturing years brought him serenity, happiness, and at length, peace. Alfred Tennyson was born at his father's rectory, Summersby, Lincolnshire, August 6, 1809. He was the fourth of twelve children, seven of whom were sons, two of them, Frederick and Charles, being endowed, like Alfred, with poetic gifts. The poet's mother, a woman of sweet and tender disposition, had much to do in molding the future laureate's character, while from his father, a man of fine culture, he received not only much of his education, but his bent towards a recluse, bookish career. Alfred was from his earliest days a retired, shy child, fond of reading and given to rhyming, and with a characteristic love of nature and of quiet rural life. Later on, he had a passion for the sea coast and for those scenes of storm and stress about the sea-girt shores of old England, which he was so feelingly and with such poetic beauty to depict in sea dreams, and in those incomparable songs, embodiments at once of sorrow and of faith, break, 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 and crossing the bar. Besides the education he received from his scholarly father and at a school at Louth for four years, young Tennyson spent some years at Trinity College, Cambridge, where, though he did not take a degree, he won in 1829 the Chancellor's Medal for the best English poem of the year, the subject of which was Timbuktu. At college he had the good fortune to number among his friends several men who later in life were, like himself, to rise to eminence, such as Henry Alford, afterwards Dean of Canterbury, R.C. Trench, later Archbishop of Dublin, C. Merivale, historian and Dean of Ely, Monckton Mills, Lord Houghton, James Spedding, editor of Lord Bacon's works, Macaulay, Thackeray, and most endeared of all, Arthur Henry Hallam, son of the historian, whose memory Tennyson has immortalized in In Memoriam. With him at college was also his brother Charles, one year his senior, with whom he collaborated in the collection of verse, issued in 1827, under the title of Poems by Two Brothers. In 1830, Tennyson made a journey to the Pyrenees with Arthur Hallam, who was engaged to the poet's sister, Amelia, and in the same year he published an independent volume entitled Poems Chiefly Lyrical. In this, his first venture alone in poetry, and in another issued in 1832, Tennyson was to manifest to the world his poetic powers and art, for they contained, besides much rhythmical and contemplative verse, such poems as Mariana, Clarabelle, Lillian, Lady Clare, The Lotus Eaters, A Dream of Pear Women, the May Queen, and the Miller's Daughter. 
In spite of the great promise bodied forth in these works, the volumes were subject to not a little unfavorable criticism, which stayed his further publishing for a period of ten years, though not the furtherance of his creative work, nor his enthusiastic efforts toward increasing the perfection of his art. It was not until 1842 that the poet again appeared in print, this time with the volume to which he appended his name, Poems by Alfred Tennyson, and which gave him high rank among the acknowledged singers of his day. Woodsworth, Southey, Landor, Campbell, Rogers, and Lee Hunt in England, and in the New World, Longfellow, Bryant, Lowell, Whittier, and Emerson. The poet contemporaries of his youth, Byron, Scott, Coleridge, Shelley, and Keats, had by this time all died, and in 1843 Southey died when Wordsworth, whom Tennyson reverenced, became poet laureate. The gap occasioned by the death of these early English poets of the century was now to be filled in large measure by Tennyson, though among the writers of song to arise were the Brownings, Rossetti, Matthew Arnold, and Swinburne. Critical appreciation of the volume of 1842 was happily encouraging to the poet. Indeed, it was most gratifying, for its many remarkable beauties were now justly and adequately appraised, particularly such fine new themes as the volume contained. Ulysses, Godiva, The Two Voices, The Talking Oak, Onun, Loxley Hall, The Vision of Sin, and Mort Darthur, the germ of the future idols of the king. Nor on this side, the Atlantic, did the new volume lack substantial recognition, and from such competent critics as Emerson and Hawthorne, while among his English contemporaries, Tennyson became, if we accept for the time Wordsworth, the acknowledged head of English song. At this period, the poet resided in London or its neighborhood, his family home in Lincolnshire having been broken up in 1837, six years after the death of his father. Here, in spite of the secluded life he led, he became a notable figure in literary circles and greatly increased the range of his friends, correspondents, and admirers. Among the latter were the Carlyles, Thomas and his clever wife Jane being especially drawn to the poet, and to them we owe interesting sketches of the personal appearance of Tennyson at this time. Mrs. Carlyle, in one of her delightful letters gossiping about Dickens, Bulwer-Lytton, and Tennyson, esteems the latter the greatest genius of the three, adding that, besides, he is a very handsome man and a noble-hearted one, with something of the gypsy in his appearance, which for me is perfectly charming. This is the historian, her husband's piece of portraiture. A fine, large-featured, dim-eyed, bronze-colored, shaggy-headed man, dusty, smoky, free and easy, who swims, outwardly and inwardly, with great composure in an articulate element as of tranquil chaos and tobacco smoke. Great now and then when he does emerge, a most restful, brotherly, solid-hearted man. Another portrait we have from the Chelsea philosopher and scorner of shams, which describes the poet very humanly as one of the finest-looking men in the world, the great shock of rough, dusky, dark hair, bright, laughing hazel eyes, massive, alkaline face, most massive, yet most delicate, of sallow brown complexion, almost Indian-looking, clothes cynically loose, free and easy, smokes infinite tobacco. His voice is musical, metallic, fit for loud laughter and piercing wail, and all that may lie between. Speech and speculation free and plenteous, I do not meet in these late decades such company over a pipe. We shall see what he will grow to. Besides the Carlyles and other notable contemporaries, Tennyson numbered at this time among his intimates John Sterling, whose life was written by the author of Sartor Resartus, James Spedding, Bacon's editor, who wrote a fine critique of the 1842 volume of poems for the Edinburgh Review, Aubrey de Vere, Edmund Lushington, A.P. Stanley, afterwards Dean of Westminster, 
and Edward Fitzgerald, the future translator of the Rubaiyat, or Quatrains of the Persian poet Omar Khayyam. These were all enthusiastic admirers of Tennyson's work and art and his close personal friends who have left on record many interesting sketches of the poet in their published writings or in letters to him and especially in reminiscences furnished for the memoir by the poet's son. Nine years before the appearance of the 1842 volume of Tennyson's verse, the poet's bosom friend Arthur Hallam died at an immature age at Vienna, and his death was the subject of much brooding in noble elegiac verse written as was Milton's Lycidas to commemorate the loss of one very dear to the poet. In In Memoriam, as all know, Tennyson sought to assuage his grief and give fine artistic expression to his profound sorrow at the loss of his companion and friend. But the work is more than a labored monument of woe, since it enshrines reflections of the most exalted and inspiring character on the internally momentous themes of life, death, and immortality. The work was published in 1850, and it at once challenged the admiration of the world for the perfection of its art, no less than for its high contemplative beauty. This was the year when Wordsworth passed to the grave, and Tennyson in his room was given the English laureateship. In this year also we find him happily married to Emily S. Selwood, a lady of Berks, to whom the poet had been engaged since 1837. With his bride he took up house at Twickenham, near London, where his son Hallam Tennyson was born in 1852. In the following year he removed to Farringford, on the Isle of Wight, which was to be his home for forty years, and where, as his son tells us, some of his best-known works were written. Here in 1854, his second son Lionel was born, whose young life of promise was terminated by jungle fever 32 years later on a return voyage from India, all that was mortal of him finding repose in the depths of the Red Sea. To complete the chief incidents in the poet's personal career, we may here record that while Tennyson acquired another home at Aldworth, Surrey, where he died October 6, 1892, followed some four years later by his wife, his happiest days were spent at Farringford the pilgrimage place of many eminent worshippers of the poet's muse, where was dispensed an unostentatious but open-handed and genial British hospitality. It should be added that besides the perquisites which attached to the office of the poet laureate, Tennyson was given from 1845 a pension of £200, $1,000, and that while in 1865 he refused a baroncy, in 1884 he accepted a peerage, and had the honor of burial October 12, 1892, in Westminster Abbey. End of section 24.